Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Ephesians 5:15 through 21. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Good morning. Thanks, Kurt, for reading. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, I wanted to thank uh, Andrew, Pastor Andrew, for taking last week's passage. Uh, My wife and I were in the Chicago area for a a family gathering, a birthday and uh, celebration, and Andrew said, sure, I'll take it. I don't think he'd read it yet when he knew which one I was uh, asking him to do, but uh, he did a wonderful job, and uh, just uh, thank you. Thank you, brother. Uh, This morning, we're continuing, actually. uh, This next part you'll see flows right out of what we, we looked at last week, so let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we get into it. Father, thank you so much for the the privilege and the joy of gathering as the the church, the gathered church. Uh, Thank you for the the joy of worship, and we thank you for your word, which uh, through which you speak to us, God, and in in which you speak to us. And we would just ask you now to do that. Uh, There's uh, a lot in here this morning, and uh, I pray you would bring home to each one of our hearts exactly what you, by your spirit, want us to hear I pray that I would be able to get out of the way so that together we can see and hear you and what your spirit has to say to us, just like we just sang. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Do you count your steps? Do you do that? Are you one of those people who keeps track of how many steps you take throughout the day? Uh, my children gave me a, a smartwatch for Christmas, and uh, or not for Christmas, for Father's Day. And uh, this watch tracks my steps from the minute I put it on in the morning until I take it off at night. I don't like to sleep with it, but when I, from, from when I put it on to when I take it off, it's keeping track of every step I take. And so I can even check, right here we go, let's see if I can do this. So far today, 2,136. Not, not very many, I'd like to do more than that, but 2,136 steps that I've taken so far. Now you might wonder, why would somebody do that? Who cares? Who cares how many steps they've taken? Uh, but if you're trying to be more healthy, Right? That's really kind of why so many people do it now. If you're trying to get more activity into your life, or if you're maybe even trying to lose a little bit of weight, it's actually kind of a useful thing to do because it, it reminds you that every step counts, right? Every step you take is another calorie burned or however that works. And some, sometimes weight loss programs, if you're on one of those or you ever tried one of those, sometimes they'll even kind of give you credit. You know, the more steps you take, the more you can eat, eat a cookie at night, maybe, something like that. And, and so that's why you might want to count your steps. And, and you start doing, I, I, I do this a little bit, and, and you start doing strange things to get your number higher, 
right? And so you'll park on the far side of the parking lot so you have farther to walk. And, or you'll, uh, some, sometimes, I'll tell you the truth, sometimes I print to the printer in the outside of the, off, the outside office. I have one in my own office, but sometimes I'll print to the one in the outer office just so I have to walk to get stuff, right? Just to, just to increase my step count. And so it's, it's helpful that way. And, and, and it's helpful because you've, you end up with this mentality that every single step counts. Well, Ephesians 5, verse 15 says pretty much the same thing. Right there in the beginning of the passage, Paul says, look carefully. Another translation says, pay attention to how you walk. Count your steps. Watch your steps. Pay attention. Because every step that we take in this life matters. It matters to God. And so he tells us, be careful. Pay attention, careful attention to how you walk. <clears throat> and that's why Paul actually keeps coming back to this, this picture, this metaphor, if you will, of, of walking. It's actually a theme, and I think I've pointed this out before, but I want to point it out again. It's a theme in the second half of Ephesians. Uh, when, when we walk, what do we do when we walk? It's, it's, it's a pretty deliberate process, even if we don't think about it. We're, we're putting one step, well, one foot in front of the other. It's not like getting in a car where it's like, boom, you're, you know, you're there, or even riding on a horse or something like that. When we walk, it's, it's one step after the other. And that's why it's such a rich biblical metaphor for the Christian life, because that's how we live the Christian life. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's one step, one hour, one day at a time. And, and so Paul's actually really kind of driving it home here in, in Ephesians. Uh, and so chapter four, which starts the second half of the book, chapter four opens with this exhortation, which I've argued is the theme of the second half of the book. Uh, he says, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling there at the beginning of, of chapter 4. And, uh, and then he comes back to that in verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, uh, do not walk the way you used to walk. He actually uses the Greek word for walking twice in that verse. Don't walk the way you used to walk when you were, when you were unsaved. Now you walk in this new way. And then he, he doubles down on it in chapter 5, and, and, and he's going to tell us three different ways to walk. And so chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then he does it again in verse 8. Uh, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. So walk in love, walk in light. Uh, now in this week's passage, verse 15 adds a third way we're supposed to walk. Now we're supposed to walk in wisdom. You see it there in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so walk in wisdom. And that's really the main theme today. Uh, the rest of this passage, let me put that up there, uh, the rest of the, the passage, so verse 15 kind of sets the agenda for us, and then uh, what we're going to look at after that, really he's simply showing us. He says, let me show you what it looks like to walk in wisdom. And so to live in a manner worthy of our calling, this big theme for the last three chapters of Ephesians, uh, in this passage we see it also means walking in wisdom. And so I want to look at these verses, 15 through 21, and as we go through them, I want to show you four ways, four ways that we, uh, we need to walk in wisdom. So he tells us walk in wisdom. Walking in wisdom is part of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul, what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in wisdom? Do I just sit around reading Proverbs all day? Is that what it means? Uh, or is there something more to it? And so here are four ways that he's going to drive home for us in this passage this morning. So four ways uh, to walk in wisdom. <clears throat> the first, number one, uh, the first way to walk in wisdom is to make the most of the time. Make the most of the time. That's what he says in verse 16. Wise people make the most of the time. Uh, starting again with 15, so we get the whole sentence. He says, look carefully. Then, 
connecting to everything he's been saying. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Here's the first way to do it. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. As I said a minute ago, in terms of the structure, the main idea for this whole paragraph is verse 15. So watch how you walk, not as a foolish person, but as a wise person. That sets our agenda. And then he tells us with a series of verbs, and this is the first one, he tells us with a series of verbs or a series of commands how to do that. So here's how we walk in wisdom. Number one, we make the best use of our time. We make the best use of the time. So couple of uh, key words in here. Uh, we'll start with the verb. Uh, the verb, make the best use of, uh, is actually a commercial term. It's a, it's a word that means to buy something or to redeem it. Uh, and, and there are examples of that literal kind of use in the Bible. Um, one of my favorites is Matthew 13. In the par- Jesus tells the parable of the man uh, with, of the treasure in the field. And so he finds a treasure in a field. He's a workman. And he finds this treasure, and so he sells everything he has, and he buys that field. It's the exact same word as we have here. It's the same word. And so it means to, to use what you have, in that, par- in that parable, money and possessions, use what you have to buy something else of value, right? So use your, what you have to buy something of value. That's what this word means. Uh, the thing of value that we have, we learn, is our time. And that's the other key word here. And so he says, make the best use of, what am I going to use to buy? Uh, your time, he says, make the best use of your time. That's the currency in this particular verse. Now, that's an interesting word here for time. Uh, this word is sometimes, and I don't know what translations you're looking at, but sometimes this word will be translated as season or appointed time or even opportunity. I think there's a translation that says, make the most of the opportunity. And the reason for this is there's actually kind of two basic words in, in the Greek language, which the Ephesians is written in, for time, and he's not using the more common one or the more literal one. Uh, and so there, there's a word that means time. So I ask you what time it is, and you might turn around and say, oh, it's 10.52, or look at your watch and say it's 10.52. So that's the, that's the, that Greek word is chronos, chronos. Uh, that means time. That's not the word Paul uses here. He actually uses a different word, and that word is, is a word that means a season or an appointed time. Right? So it's, it's almost a philosophical or theological kind of a time. It, it's, it's the season, the appointed time. That's the word he uses here. And to help you understand the difference, um, you know, if somebody says, what time does the World Series start on Tuesday? Uh, there's a specific answer to that question. 7.09. Right? The game starts at 7.09 on Tuesday night. And so that's time in terms of, you know, time, a literal time. Uh, but if you uh, went up to an Atlanta Braves fan, I don't know if we have very many of those in this part of the world, but if you went to a Braves fan and you said, what time is the game and what time is the series, that Braves fan might say, it's our time, right? They might say, yeah, this is our season. We've, you know, for the first time in 20-whatever years, we get to be in the World Series. And so this is our time, uh, an Atlanta Braves fan might say. And so same word, time, time, but two different kind of meanings. And the one, as I say, the one Paul uses here is the one that means a season, a special time, an appointed time. And so that's important because when he says in verse 16, make the best use of the time, I don't know about you, but I've seen people reduce this to time management. You know, Paul's, Paul's telling you to manage your time well, you know, don't check your email first thing and, you know, do the most important things first and those kind of time management skills they give us. That is not what he's talking about. Paul's not talking about how to organize your calendar. He's talking about making the best use of your time, 
your capital T time that is given to you here on planet Earth. And so you and I have a time. We have an appointed time. And what is it? It's the life. It's the life that you and I have to live. Here it is. It starts here, it ends there, and there's this time in between that is our time. Make the best use of that, Paul says in verse 16. And then he gives us the reason. You say, okay, why should I do that? Is he kind of pushing for carpe diem, you know, seize the day and, you know, eat, drink, and be merry? Is, is that the kind of thing he's saying? No, he's not saying that at all. He tells us the reason to make the most of our time. The, the reason is that the days are evil. The days are evil. Make the best use of the time you have because the days are evil. That's a loaded phrase, right? The days are evil. Uh, when Paul says that, he's not being a grouchy old man. Right? He's not kind of like, back in my day, you know, <laughs> back in my day, things were better. You know? when, when I grew up in the 1980s, kids never did stuff like this. You know? That is not Paul, what Paul means when he says, you know, the days are evil. He's making a theological statement here. He's, he's tapping into actually a Jew, a, the, an understanding from Judaism of, of how the world is, and he's, and he's endorsing it. It's a theological statement about this entire present age in which you and I live. I like how uh, there's a, one of the commentators I'm using is a guy named Clint Arnold, and he summarized what Paul is saying very well. Uh, he, here's his take. When Paul says the days are evil, he reflects a deep conviction that God's people presently live in an age characterized by an abundance of evil and dominated by powerful supernatural forces. That's Paul's take on the world. We live in an age, this present age, characterized by an abundance of evil dominated by powerful supernatural forces. And so that's what he means when he says the days are evil. He means the devil is still at large. Yeah, he's defeated, but he's still at large. Sin is still with us. People still die. We're still waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. It's not going to be that way forever, but for now it is. That's what he means when he says the days are evil. That's what he's referring to. It's all these limitations and grief and burdens and all the rest of it that we live with now. And even just the, fallen, the fall itself, this fallen world itself. And so what do we do? We live in a world like that. What do we do? We make the best use of the time. That's what he says. Make the best use of the days, the time, the life that God has given to you. Uh, because the days are evil, wise people do that. Wise people make the most of their time on planet Earth. Now, let me give you three examples. And uh, we could probably... Um, elaborate on other ones, but these are the ones the Lord laid on my heart. But as I was meditating through this passage, uh, because I think we need to make this a little more practical to understand what it looks like. Uh, and so uh, what does it look like to make the most of my time because the days are evil? Well, because the days are evil, uh, we should therefore live with an eternal perspective. I think that's a big one flowing out of what he says here. Uh, the time in which we are now living is not the end of the story that our God is writing, right? The, the evil of this present age is a temporary condition. This is not the, the, the final state of affairs, which means you and I should be shifting our attention to the story that God is writing. Right? If, if these days are evil, then wise people are going to focus their efforts on the days to come. That's where we're going to invest. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said? Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the same thing, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The days are evil. Right? Thieves steal your stuff, rust takes it away, moths eat it up, the days are evil. Don't, so don't store up your treasures here, Jesus says. Rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where the evil can't touch, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so that's one way to think about this. The days are evil, 
So store up your treasures in heaven. Live with an eternal perspective. Focus on the things of eternity. Another way, and second example, is to make the best use of our time is to resist temptation. And that's, I think, when he says make the best use of your time for the days are evil, what he's telling us is resist evil, resist temptation. And this really goes back to some of the things we talked about last week, right? You think about last week's passage and even the passage before that. Uh, you know, this is why we get rid of sexual immorality. This is why we get rid of empty words and dishonesty and coarse talk and all these other things. This is why we leave behind the darkness and walk instead in the light. We do it because these days are evil. And, and we understand that, they, that they're gunning for us, right? That, that temptation is gunning for us. And so we resist that. And we, that's another way to make the best use of our days. And then a third way to make the best use of the time is to spread the good news. Spread the good news. Because the days are evil, this present age, we therefore should tell the world about Jesus Christ. Tell the world about Jesus. The clock is ticking. The days are evil, right? The clock is ticking on planet Earth. And not just the planet, but the people. Right? Every person you and I know, there's, there's a, an expiration date. Every one of us, including ourselves. And which means, you know, it's so easy to get bogged down in, in the stuff here, but there's, the eternal is what, is what really matters. Yeah, and so you think about the, you know, rich, poor, young, old, healthy, sick, vaccinated, unvaccinated, all these things we divide ourselves over. The clock is ticking on all of it. And, and so... Uh, Live for him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And flowing out of that is this call to, to spread the gospel, right? To, to get that good news of Jesus out to the world. We, we, we need to do all the things. I think you have to understand that, right? We talk a lot around here. It's one of our core values here at Grace Point. Call to action. Putting our faith into action. And so we do. We, we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the prisoners and all those things. Because Jesus told us to do those things. But if we do all those things and do not point people to the Savior, the only one who can rescue them from these evil days, we are not making the best use of the time. And so that's part of this. That's, that's part of what it means to walk in wisdom. Walking in wisdom means making the most of the time we have on earth by spending on our, our lives, redeeming the time, spending the time on that which matters for eternity. That's the first one. The second one, the second way to walk in wisdom that Paul's going to highlight for us here is to understand the Lord's will. Understand the Lord's will, he says. Wise people uh, learn how to understand the Lord's will. It's verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the word therefore connects us back to verse 15. Uh, some, some might be tempted to take it uh, referring specifically to the, the days are evil. But I think because he's gonna, he talks about foolishness again, it actually connects us back to the, the, the main command. And so, so the main command to walk in wisdom. So another way to walk in wisdom is, verse 17, to understand what the will of the Lord is. And so the key there is this word understand. This is going to help us kind of get into what he means. What does he mean when he says understand the will of the Lord? Well, the verb he uses here means to discern or comprehend. And the emphasis is on um, a comprehensive knowledge that knows what to do with it. That's really kind of my, my clumsy way to, to, to define that, right? To understand something thoroughly or perceive it clearly. And 
when you look at the, the other places where this particular Greek word is used, the emphasis goes on knowing what to do with the, the knowledge. And so it's not just cognitive awareness, it's applied knowledge. That's what he means when he says, understand the will of the Lord. So it's not just know it in your head, it's know how to live it out. Know how to live it out in your life. Uh, here's a, a, a picture to help you know, see the difference between the two. Um, it, it's like the difference between having a recipe for apple pie and being able to actually make a really delicious apple pie. Right, so some of you are really great cooks, and let's say you gave me your grandmother's recipe, or maybe it's your own recipe, uh, for the, you know, the world's best apple pie. And, and you give it to me, you write it out on an index card, both sides, handwriting's clear, super detailed. I now have a cognitive awareness of how to make your apple pie. But that doesn't mean that this guy can go into a kitchen and, and bring out that apple pie. I don't have that skill set. I might, you know, maybe if I tried a dozen times, maybe it would start uh, to taste okay, but, but I wouldn't have. What, what you want, it's not enough to just have it on an index card. You need the applied knowledge, the ability to go into the kitchen, do the baking, have it taste good, and impress all your friends with how wonderful it is. That's the kind of knowledge verse 17 is talking about. It's, it's applied. It's knowing how to actually do it. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying that's what we need when it comes to the will of the Lord. Uh, it's not enough to just kind of know it. It's to know how to live it. Right? It's to have this thorough and clear understanding of what he wants and how he wants us to live it out. Uh, we could talk a lot about the will of the Lord. And uh, let me just, I, I think this is helpful. Let me um, help with this. Uh, I think there are two levels when we talk about God's will that we need to think at. And I think he means both here both come into play with this passage. Uh, the first is, uh, is, I'll use the term directional, the directional will of the Lord, right? And so when he says, understand what the Lord's will is, I think he means this, the directional will of the Lord. And this is the stuff most of us think about when we think about the will of God. When the will of God comes up, most of us are thinking directional. What, what's God's will for me? What direction does he want me to go? And so it's all those questions. Oftentimes we associate them with younger people, but the older I get, the more I find some of them anyway, we're still asking. You know, but, but it's, what does, what does the Lord want? What's his plan for my life? All right, you know, for some, you know, what, who, who does he want me to marry? Or does he want me to marry? And what job does he want me to have? Should I buy a house or rent an apartment? Should I live in the country or move to the city? All right, what college should I go to? That's a big one at a certain time in life. What should I major in? Should I start my own business or work for someone else? All these kind of questions we have about, about God's will for us. And, and you could call that the directional will. And, and what he's saying here in verse 17 is wise people will seek God on those. Right? We won't just kind of live like practical atheists as if, as if there's no God in the heavens. You know, we have a business decision to make and we'll seek his face on that thing. And we'll do that hard work. Now, there isn't an easy formula. We could do a whole separate sermon on this issue, so I, you know, I can't summarize in a minute and a half how you, how you discern the directional will of the Lord. Uh, but the point is, is it, takes, it takes hard work. It takes getting advice. It takes reading in Scripture. It takes a lot of those kind of things so that we can do that. And wise people will. Wise people will seek the Lord. That's the point. Uh, the, the other way, so you've got the directional will of God. The other kind of will that we might talk about is the decreed will. So you got directional and you got decreed. And this is the stuff God commands. He tells us to do it. And so there's no open-endedness here, right? There's, there is open-endedness on the directional will. You know, you might go this way, you might go that way. Both are perfectly legitimate decisions. Neither one's immoral. You know, I mean, you could go either way. But when it comes to the, the decreed will, there's, 
there's, there's no uh, ambiguity to this one. If God says do it, do it. And if God says don't do it, don't do it. That's the decreed will of God. <clears throat> and so as you think about these two, it's important to, to recognize that the decreed will is higher. Right? So the decreed will supersedes our, our sense of the directional will and therefore c- controls it. Right? And so the decreed will of God will control how we understand the directional will of God. That by itself right there is a big part of understanding uh, the Lord's will when he, when he says that term in verse 17. And so, uh, you know, the Lord will never lead us to do something directionally that he has forbidden in a decreed sort of way. You know, maybe you're trying to figure out what career to go into, and uh, you're really good with a, with a gun, right? You've got a great aim, and, you know, you're a great shot, and you'd be like, well, I'd make a great hitman, right? That's what I ought to do. I ought to... But no, there's, you know, thou shalt not murder. There's no such thing as a Christian hitman. And so just because you got the gifts and the abilities and the talents doesn't mean that God's leading you in that direction. And so, uh, you know, so, so that's a kind of a silly picture, I suppose, of, of the difference between the two. But the point, it's just one verse, I know, the point is that wise people are going to seek God on this. We're going to seek him on the decreed will, which means getting to know this book really, really well. And we're going to seek him on the directional will in terms of you know, listening in prayer, getting advice. You know, those are some of the things we do. What are your gifts? What are you good at? Uh, that's, those are all part of, of discerning God's directional will. So, wise people, that's another way we walk in wisdom. We understand the Lord's will, not just cognitively, but we seek in our everyday lives, step by step, to, to live it out. All right, number three, the third way to walk in wisdom that we see here in this passage uh, is, is to reject drunkenness. That's the one Paul brings up here. He says it in verse 18. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It's pretty blunt, actually. One of the blunter passages, especially in the New Testament, on this issue. Do not get drunk uh, with wine. Do not get drunk, period. Now, there's a few things uh, to say about this particular command. Let's, let's talk about this one a little bit. And, and I find a, a lot of evangelical churches like ours don't talk about this very much. And I think we're a little, we're a little embarrassed. We're maybe even a little afraid that we're going to be labeled as legalistic. Um, I get it. I grew up in a fundamentalist kind of setting. I get the fear of legalism. And yet these verses are here. And so I want to wrestle with these a little bit this morning. So here's a few things to say about verse 19. Excuse me, verse 18. The first is, maybe this is obvious, but let's say it anyway. This command is not limited to wine. Right, so he says, do not get drunk with wine. And so somebody goes, woohoo, pass me the brandy or the beer or, or whatever. Uh, that's not what's going on here. He's using wine. The reason he's, and I'll actually read you a couple of these verses in a minute. Uh, the reason he uses wine is he's kind of reaching back into his Old Testament and he's grabbing some Proverbs that speak on this issue. In fact, the wording he uses is exactly the wording of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And he basically quotes the Septuagint from the Proverbs when he says, do not get drunk with wine. So he's not limiting the application to wine only. He's reaching back to Proverbs and reminding us of what the Proverbs say about wine. So, so it's not just wine. It's, it's the abuse of alcohol is what he's talking about here. And that really gets us into the second thing. The second thing I want to say about verse 18 is that it does not prohibit drinking alcohol altogether. I think it, we've got to recognize that. It, it doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk. Uh, someone's going to come to me afterwards. Here, I'll save you the trouble. Uh, and tell me that Jesus turned water into wine, right? Hey, you know, Jesus, God clearly wants us to drink. Jesus turned w- water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. 
And that's true. He absolutely did. He turned water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. However, Jesus did not get hammered at the reception. He didn't. And that's the part Paul's talking about. Uh, he's not saying alcohol is sinful. He's saying the abuse of alcohol is sinful. And that's consistently the, the Bible's teaching on this issue. The problem, though, this is the problem. The problem is that some of us have a hard time telling the difference. And that, that is where it gets hard. So sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And, and that's why there are these warnings, right? It, it's actually similar to sexuality. It's a good thing, but then there's all these warnings in the Scripture about abusing it. Same thing with, with alcohol. And so you have these warnings in Scripture against abusing. And that's really the, the third thing to say about verse 18. And the third thing connects to the reason, right? The reason for this command. Why does he say don't get drunk? That is debauchery. He gives you the reason. Do not get drunk with wine or anything else, for that is debauchery. Uh, debauchery. What a good word. When's, when's the last time you used that one in a sentence? Right? That's just uh, not a word we use a whole lot. But it's, it's pretty descriptive, actually. If you kind of look it up, uh, the, the word means to abandon oneself. So there's a sense of being given over to. Uh, you've kind of taken leave of your senses. Uh, to abandon oneself to reckless and immoral behavior. So it's, it's, it's both. It's, it's reckless, but also immoral. Right? And that's why uh, another commentator describes debauchery as a life devoid of virtue. A life that, was, that would be given over to debauchery as a life devoid of any kind of virtue. You could even call it worthless. Not the person. There's no such thing as a worthless person. We're all created in the image of God. But, but that way of living would have, would have no value it would, if, if, it, if it was given over to debauchery. Which, which means, if you look at this passage, verse 18, he actually sets up a contrast with verse 16. Right? And so verse 16 tells us to make the best use of the time, and then in verse 18, he gives us an example of a life that makes the worst use of the time. Right? And so you, you know, we're told to make the best use, and then he warns us against making the worst use, this life given over to reckless, immoral behavior. And, and that's what Paul says, um, al- drunkenness, I'll use that term, a willful entering into, a drunkenness leads to. And it's not wise. In, that, in, the, in this passage, in this, where the whole thing is controlled by that command to walk in wisdom, uh, it isn't wise to give oneself over to that kind of life. And uh, let me just show you, like I said, we don't talk about it a lot, so let's think about this a little bit. I, I want to show you the, the, a couple of the Proverbs that I think Paul is drawing from, this tradition from the Proverbs, um, because he's not making this up. This is not new revelation. You know, sometimes we get new revelation in the New Testament. This isn't new revelation. Uh, this comes from Proverbs. So a couple of Proverbs here. Uh, one short one, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. So you got this direct connection between the abuse of alcohol and not being wise. Uh, there's a longer one in Proverbs 23. I think it's one of the most vivid passages in, uh, certainly in the Bible, it might be in all of ancient literature on, on uh, the, the, the dangers of, of abusing alcohol. So this is uh, Proverbs 23. I'm going to read from verse 29. Uh, the proverb writer says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Where'd that bruise come from? That kind of thing. Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Uh, 
do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly, really emphasizing how, you know, the attractiveness of it. Why, why, why not? Well, it ends, in the end, it's, it bites like a serpent. What a picture. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. He's talking about hallucinations. Your, ear, your heart will utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, who lies on top of a mast, which would be a very unsafe place to try to take a nap. Uh, They struck me, you will say, but I wasn't hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That's a pretty grim description. Like I say, it's very vivid, very picturesque. It's a grim description of what abusing alcohol can do to a person's life. Now, at this point, we say, well, that's not me. I can handle my booze. Are you sure? That's the question I want to ask, and then I'll move on. Are you sure? Do do you have days when you cannot cope unless you have a drink or two at the end of the day? Have you ever drank so much that you cannot remember how much you drank? Have you ever said things after a few beers that you never would have said if you hadn't had those beers? Have you ever woke up next to someone that you did not plan to wake up next to? Have you ever drank so much you felt sick the next day? Have you ever said, I'm going to stop? Maybe it was in a fight with your spouse. All right, fine, I'm going to stop. And then found you just couldn't stop. That's what this is warning us against. It's unwise to live that way. It it leads to all kinds of nasty things, broken relationships, destroyed lives, uh, to use Paul's words, debauchery. It, It leads to the waste of a life. And so don't do it. Don't live that way. Get get help if you need it. There's no shame in that. Uh, Get help if you need it, but be a wise person and reject reject drunkenness. It's one of the ones he puts in here. Finally, uh, the the fourth way to to walk in wisdom is to be filled with the Spirit. And this one is kind of the opposite of the one we just talked about, and he does that intentionally. Be filled with the Spirit. Wise people walk in a way that is filled with the Spirit. And that's actually the rest of, that's the focus of the rest of this morning's passage. And actually, you'll see over the next few weeks, it actually, I think it carries into the rest of the book, this idea of being filled with the Spirit. It's going to govern a lot of what he says. But for this morning, we'll just do verses, uh, do through verse 21 and then stop there. Uh, It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, there's another contrast, this is the third of three contrasts in a row, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, excuse me, and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul brings up drunkenness there at the beginning of verse 18 for two reasons. He's actually got two reasons he brings it up. The first is the one we already talked about. It's a pretty good example of of, of being given over to a foolish way of living, right? So, so it's, it's that first reason, it's a foolish way to live. The other reason he brings this one up, and there's other examples he could have used, but I think one of the reasons he brings, he brings it up here is that being drunk is a really good negative example of what he wants to say positively about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and let me try to explain what I mean. In the ancient world, uh, people would use alcohol for 
many of the same reasons people use it today, right? They, they used it to celebrate, right? You go to a wedding or maybe, you know, a party or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the, the celebration. And if, if you don't have a problem with it, if you're not abusing it, that really is fine, right? If you're not addicted to alcohol, if it's not a problem substance for you, that is a, a morally acceptable thing to do in God's eyes. However, uh, so that, they did that in the ancient world. We do that today. That, that part, we can understand how they, they used alcohol. They, they had another way of using alcohol that we don't really do, especially in Western society. Maybe in some parts of the world they do, but, but not in Western society. They used alcohol as a way, it was really a religious thing. They used it to engage with the gods, right? So small g gods. Uh, they used alcohol to, and, and you would actually see this in a lot of different forms of, of paganism. Um, the most famous example, and the one most likely in the, in the mind of Paul's readers, is uh, the cult of Dionysus. There's this one of the Greco-Roman gods, uh, and I can't remember if Dionysus is the Greek or the Roman version, but uh, one, of the, one of those gods was a god named Dionysus, and he was the god of the vine. And, and he was actually one of the more popular Greco-Roman gods, at least in part because the way you worshipped Dionysus was getting drunk. That, that, that was the way you did it. And, and, and they actually had this belief that a, a, a person could commune with the god by becoming intoxicated. That, that was, they, they saw a direct association between the two. And some, in some instances, they even believed that the God would take possession of them, right? And so you would, you would, um, you would get drunk so that the, the, you could kind of commune with, have a relationship with that particular God. Dionysus was one of the more popular ones, but he wasn't the only one uh, that, um, that came into play with this. And so in, in many different variations of kind of I'll use the word pagan in that sense. Pagan religions, uh, getting drunk was a form of worship. It was a way to worship. And I think that's the part Paul's picking up on in the contrast with what he's going to tell us we're supposed to do when he brings in the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, if you belong to Jesus now, in a picture, you know, let's say you were a, a citizen of Ephesus and you're a Gentile, you don't have a Jewish background, so you don't, you're not burdened by all that Jewish morality and you're just used to living like, a Greek, like a, a Greek pagan and you used to go to the Dionysus parties and all the rest. And so you've got this idea in your head that, well, the way to, the way to get to know God is to, is to get drunk. And, and what he's going to say to us, he's going to say, no, if you belong to Jesus, that's not how you commune with God anymore. Now you commune with God by being filled with something else. You're not going to be filled with alcohol. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And it's kind of a good picture to understand because if you think about someone who becomes drunk, that drunk person yields control, right? They yield control of, of, of their lives to, to that substance, that alcohol or that drug or whatever else. And, and in the same way, not not getting taken over by as if possessed, but what does a Christian do? What do we talk about when we talk about the Holy Spirit? We talk about yielding to, yielding to the work of and the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so that's why you've got this contrast between don't be drunk with wine, that's an old way of living, back to that idea of new versus old, now be filled with, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, and I'll bet you some of you are thinking the same thing I, I do when I read this, what, I, what goes to my head is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because it sounds kind of mystical, right? It really does sound kind of mystical. I'd love to ask Paul, what do you mean be filled with the Spirit? What, is, what does that look like? Well, he, I don't have to ask Paul because he's told us already. He tells us there in verses 19 through 21. He, he tells us, uh, and, and actually he gives us four descriptions, and they're all practical. 
They're really practical. They, they, we can look at how they work out. Um, and, and, and you see it in verses 19 through 21. Actually, I would make the case it's going to carry over into a lot of the rest of the book. I guess I said that before, but I'm priming you for what's coming in the next few weeks. Uh, but, but, so I say to Paul, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It doesn't involve chanting. It doesn't involve burning incense. Uh, it doesn't involve being splashed with holy water. You don't have to speak in tongues. You don't have to be doused with some bucket of special oil or something like that. None of that is what the Bible says about how to be filled with the Spirit. Here's what it says in this passage. It says, worship and submit. I'll boil the four, the four things he says down to two. Uh, submitting to the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, involves worship and submission. And so we worship the Lord together, and we submit to one another in the Lord. Uh, let, let me just show you both of them in this text. I'll just take them in turn. First, we worship with one another. We worship the Lord with each other. And that's verses 19 and 20. Uh, what do you see in verses 19 and 20? It's singing. It's all singing, right? It's, it's different forms of singing. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. He talks about gratitude. Uh, he uses the word sing specifically. And, and you, you, could, you could kind of separate them out and look at the different things they mean. The Psalms and the Psalms were probably the Old Testament Psalms. The spiritual songs were probably the new songs they were writing. So a lot like us, they had old songs and new songs. Same thing in the first century, just like we do today. But laying aside kind of those details, the point is it was all sung, it was all sung, which means our God is a musical God, and we are a musical people. It's one of the distinctives of Christianity versus pretty much every other, everything else, right? You'll get some, some chanting and some um and you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, Judaism actually sings uh, as well, especially in the Old Testament context. I don't know as much about modern-day Judaism, but I believe they do. And, and the reason Judaism and certainly Christianity would sing is that this is how God reveals himself. He is pleased. He is pleased when his people worship him musically. It's, a, it's what the scripture says. And not only is he pleased, but the scripture also says he meets us there. Right, so how does it, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We were working on it half an hour ago. It, it means we worship together. And God meets us in his worship. Psalm 22.3, and this is one of those places where the King James Version does it best. Psalm 22.3 says, The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. He dwells among, he lives with, he always, he's always with us, but he, but he inhabits uh, the praises of his people. And so that's one way, and we can talk about that more, but we, we worship God with other believers. That's part of what it means to pursue a life step by step, day by day. You do it on Sundays, we do it together. You can do it in the, you know, during the week, listen to whatever you want, uh, make worship a regular part of your life because it's part of what it looks like for you and me to be filled with the Spirit. The other practice Paul connects to, to being filled with the Spirit is, it's right there in verse 21, and it's submitting. Submit to one another. I'll use the term mutual submission. Be filled with the Spirit, verse 18, by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about submission today. We're going to cliffhanger, right? <laughs> cliffhanger here. And the reason I don't need to say much about it is that submission... Submitting to one another as a way to live a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit is pretty much the guiding principle for the next two sermons. And so Paul, grammatically, I'll show you this more next week, grammatically when he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, in the very next verse, wives submit to, I don't even I have to look again this week, I can't remember if he even bothers to repeat the verb, I don't think he does. Wives to your husbands 
and then he'll go with husbands, what it looks like for husbands to submit their wives. So he's going to do it with marriage in next week's passage. Now you're all going to come next week if you can be here, because, oh boy, it's that passage, uh-oh. Uh, so, so he'll do it with marriage, and it's about mutual submission. Then he'll do it with parents and children. It's about mutual submission. It's going to connect back. And then he's going to do it with the workplace, and it's about mutual submission, masters to slaves, slaves, uh, slaves to masters, or we would use employer-employee. And it's all guided by this principle of, of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so I'm actually going to, I'm not going to say very much more about it right now. It all comes in the next two weeks. For this morning, I just wanted us to start with that big picture. Uh, Submitting to one another. We don't talk about submitting to one another because of power dynamics. It's not about power for the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's not about, oh, I'm dysfunctional or I'm an unhealthy person and so I need to find somebody I can submit to. It is not that for us. That's not what it is for us. It's about living a life that's pleasing to God and that is filled with the Holy Spirit, a life that that the Holy Spirit will inhabit. He does. He inhabits it when we voluntarily choose to put others before ourselves in those different relationships, in the church, but actually in those other relationships that we'll talk about the next two weeks. And so that's a wise way to live, right? We'll we'll talk about that with the stuff we talk about over the next two weeks. Remember that all of that is a wise way, the wise way. It's not just an optional one. It is the wise way to live. Well, a few months ago, I had an opportunity to uh, put my step counter to the test uh, in July, I uh, took a, a short retreat, a little three-day retreat. It's something I try to do every year, and uh, I was gone for two nights, kind of three days and two nights, and I, uh, usually I'll use that time for some extra time in prayer and, and uh, mostly some planning, a lot of long-range planning, sermon planning, other kind of planning. And so I, I did that this year in July, and I actually stayed local. I went down to um, Griswold. I don't know how many know this, but there's a, a Catholic retreat center down in Griswold. It's a lovely facility. I mean, you just kind of, you know, you don't have to pray to the statues and whatever, but um, but it's a very lovely facility. They're very open-handed with it. It's a great place. I recommend it, actually. And so I was there uh, for three days in July, and on the middle day of my time there, I decided to to get out of the little apartment they had given me to use uh, to take a hike. And so I I wanted to get out, you know, get some exercise, get some fresh air, frankly, get my step counter going, you know, get, get, get my count up. And so I, uh, they, they have a trail. They have this one hiking trail that you can go out on. And um, I had asked about it the day before. Can I go out on the trail? And they said, yes, you can. You can but uh, a couple of warnings. Uh, the first warning is that the trail's kind of grown up a little bit. It's got a little carry, you know, it's hard to see in a few places where the trail turns. Uh, they blamed COVID. They haven't had a lot of retreats lately. And so usually with people walking on the trail, it beats it down and it makes the trail real obvious. So just be careful to, to stay on the trail, they said. Uh, the other thing they warned me to do was to not leave the property. Don't leave the trail. Don't leave the property. You're, if you do, you'll end up on this farmer's land who lives adjacent, and they don't like it. They don't like people traipsing through, through the property. Well, long story short, I got lost. <laughs> and uh, it, it was the classic fork in the road moment. It felt like a Robert Frost poem or something, you know? Two roads diverged in the wood. And, and they'd, um, they'd given me a map. I actually had a map, right? It, it was a hand-drawn map. It wasn't the most accurate, but it should have been enough. And, and uh, I, I was looking at this part of the map, and I could tell I was close to the edge of the property the way they'd drawn it. And according to the map, I was supposed to go right. But I couldn't see anything to the right. I mean, there, was, I couldn't even see like a deer path. I mean, it just looked to me like nothing to the right. To the left, though, 
was this wonderful trail. I mean, you could take a four-wheeler down this thing. And I found out later that's what it was used for. Um, it was this nice, wonderful trail to, to, the, to the left. And so uh, I, I went left. And uh, I walked for a few minutes, and I saw a no trespassing sign. And I thought, why would the retreat center put that up? That's not very friendly. They should take that down, right? Why, do they, why does a retreat center need a, a no trespassing sign? But I kept going. And... Uh, <laughs> I came to another trespassing, no trespassing sign, and it gave me pause, but I was pretty sure I was on the right trail. So I kept going and came to another no, no trespassing sign. And at this point, I realized I probably wasn't supposed to be here. But, um, but I kept going because <laughs> I, I was pretty sure that if I was oriented correctly, the access road that I'd driven in on the day before was in front of me. And so, you know, it's kind of... Actually, my, my watch has a compass, and I kind of got to use my compass. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that access road is that way. And so I'm just going to keep going that way at this point. I'll pick up the access, and I'll just walk, walk back on the road. And I was close. I was close to right. The access road was in front of me, but there was a house in between. And so, um, I, you know, if I wasn't trespassing, it would be funny. You know, I kind of parted the woods, and I step into these people's backyard. And I felt awful about it, because the woman, I don't know the family, I doubt they'll watch this, but I'm sorry if they do. Um, there was a woman, I couldn't see her, but I could hear her. She was like calling her, it was either a dog or a toddler, I'm not sure which. Uh, she was calling, somebody needed to come, and she was calling, and I'm like, oh, this is not right. Uh, you know, especially because I've walked past three or four no trespassing signs. So uh, I turned around, and I went back, and I, I retraced my steps, and I finally made myself my way back to my fork in the road, and I took out my map, and I'm like, what did I do wrong? And, and I looked again, and I looked more carefully, and, and now I could sort of see it. I could sort of see what. And so I had two choices. I could take this one that I think is the path, or I could retrace, and it was almost an hour to go back the way I had originally come. And, and I decided to try it. I decided I took the one I should have taken in the first place, and less than 10 minutes later, I was back where I was supposed to be. I was, I was back at the retreat center. It's not a stretch to say that my little adventure in the woods that day is a pretty good picture, actually, of what Paul is saying, and what, more importantly, what God is saying in this passage. Pay careful attention to how you walk. What does he say? Don't be unwise, right? Don't take the wrong path. Instead, be wise and take the right path. And here's the, the best lesson, I think. Even if it doesn't look like the right path to you, Right? Even if it does not seem like the right path to you, if God says it's the right path, it's the right path. And wise people will take it. So walk, every step counts. Walk in wisdom before the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you so much for your graciousness and kindness to us. Thank you uh, that you forgive us. Uh, we are all trespassers uh, in that theological, biblical sense. And uh, we've all messed up in these different areas, but you are so gracious, so kind, so merciful. We thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. And uh, we would simply ask, Lord, that you would help us, help us to walk in wisdom in these areas we've talked about today. Uh, Lord, I do think of the, the one with alcohol. It's not one we talk about much, but if, if anyone here is struggling with that, um, Lord, help, help them to get help. And uh, they could come talk to me or whoever, but... Uh, if, if that's an issue for any here, help us to walk wise in that way. But, but in all of these ways, Lord, help us to be a people who, who are walking in wisdom, filled with your spirit, walking in love, walking in the, in the light of purity for your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.